Hello and welcome to Smug and Play, a podcast dedicated to celebrating Windows 9X gaming. And with me is my fellow podcaster and brother, Austin Stewart. Hi there. I'm I'm Austin. I'm the uh, I'm the one who has the voice that's shakier than a Fry's Electronics Super Socket Seven CPU motherboard combo. Uh, all right. Yeah. So we released our first podcast. We're very thankful to those who uh, decided to tune in. We kind of plastered some information about the podcast on on Facebook and and Twitter and Instagram. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll talk more about uh, what what. We have up on the blog and and other things at the end of the episode. Uh, But thanks to everyone who's subscribed so far. And this is just the beginning of the journey. Uh, We're getting into the more interesting stuff now that it's finally January of 1995. Okay, so we wanted to always cover the historical context for our uh, episode today about January 1995. Uh, Let's kick off some events. So uh, Star Trek Voyager premiered on UPN. Yes, did you know that UPN was where Voyager premiered? I had forgotten that Voyager started so soon, but um, yeah, it's, it's it's concurrent with DS9 which is also interesting. So there's a lot of Star Trek happening at this moment. Next, Prodigy begins offering access to the World Wide Web. <laughs> this is the first time that you've been able to access the quote-unquote World Wide Web following that conference that happened right at the end of last year. Now on Prodigy, you can actually enter website addresses and go to them. Yeah. Not that there's much there. <laughs> but you, you go to, there's like CERN. <clears throat> Was Yahoo up? Could you go? I don't know. I don't think Yahoo existed yet. No, I doubt I doubt it. We should check that, but I really doubt it. All right, next opening statements were made in the OJ case starting January 24th. I don't know if Cochran was already involved, but I guess that would have been exciting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember we I remember we stopped. This is bizarre, but we stopped at my my middle school. We stopped during the day and watched the opening statements of the OJ case. Um wow. This is tell you. This should tell you something about ho- how horrible and racist, and also um, how not committed to academics my middle school was. So that's cool. Uh, yay, nineteen ninety five. Yay! All right. So you wanted to talk about Windows ninety five. Well, so we've arrived in nineteen ninety five. We're so excited. This is about the Win nine X era, but the Win nine X era has not actually started yet because Windows ninety five has not been released. But we're starting to see articles in PC Magazine and other publications about Windows ninety five that are a combination of sort of astute uh, observations about the technology and also a lot of sort of hearsay and rumor mongering. Um, the January 24th issue of PC Magazine, uh, PC Magazine, and PC Magazine is sort of the premier personal computing old school magazine. They they actually had issues every print issues every two weeks. They were always in excess of 200 pages. They're absolutely packed with industry advertisements. Um, but their January 24th issue had an article entitled "Why Windows 95: A Historical Overview." Um, They basically said the reason why we want Windows 95 is because eight years ago, Intel, eight years in 1994, but eight years ago, Intel had released the 32-bit 386, but everyone was still using 16-bit operating systems, at least in the home. Uh, Windows 3.1 on top of DOS is a is a 16-bit arrangement. And IBM with OS2 and and Microsoft with Windows NT uh, had tried to bring 32-bit like fully 32-bit computing to to computers, but they hadn't gotten a significant portion of the market, especially the the home market. Uh, And one of the big challenges that they faced was onboarding developers to a new API. So the author of this article is excited because Windows 95 is going to allow developers to mix native 32-bit code with legacy 16-bit API calls. Um, But he's a little bit concerned that, yeah, we're going to get some performance increase from this because they'll be able to write some of the code in 32-bit. But at the same time, a lot of the you know a lot of the Windows API is still going to be 16-bit at least under the hood, and so there's going to be sort of a at least initially some limitations to the gains that we get. But um, you know he's hopeful that as things progress, things are going to 
become more and more 32-bit native, um, and we're going to start to to reap benefits in terms of you know actually being able to access large amounts of memory and the, and the performance improvements that come with some of the newer instruction sets. And um, there's it's it's funny. At this point, the author believes that Windows 95 won't be built on top of DOS 7, but it's going to replace DOS entirely like an NT, and that didn't happen. So it sounds like Microsoft was promising a lot more than they actually would end up delivering uh, at this point. But the author's also excited for preemptive multitasking, longer file names, and plug-and-play support, as were we. Uh, And those things more or less materialized. And yeah, the, it, it closes with this kind of bizarre thing where the author's like, well, OEM adoption is going to happen not just because uh, the system requirements are lower and the, and the interface is friendlier than NT, but also because the name itself, Windows 95, is like hip and cool and it's less nerdy and, and intimidating than NT. That was like the, the closing statement. It's like, okay, whatever. That's, I may have overestimated the quality of the editorial content to PC Magazine, um, but, uh, yeah, so the, the, the march to windows 95 is, is happening. Um, are you excited for 95, Alan? I'm excited for 95. I, I feel like every press account didn't really explain things well. And it's only after being a programmer for many years and, and learning more that I've understood it. You know, I, I think they talk about the preemptive multitasking, which is obviously better than Windows 3.1, where the, your, your program had to like hand off multitasking yeah. to the next. That's called program. cooperative or collaborative multitasking, where the the currently active program has to yield, meaning the developer has to code into the program that it should yield, so that other programs can have processing time, which was a, a nice. A nice try, I guess, but guess what? Developers didn't do a very good job of that. No, but even more so than that, the the 16-bit Windows programs were all single-threaded, and so mm. I, I think what I've now come to learn is like why Windows 95 was different was that there could be a thread that was drawing the screen, updating the screen, while another thread did whatever computation or downloading things or whatever it needed to do. And so Windows 95 programs, eventually when they figured out how to program them correctly, were a lot more responsive than than the 16-bit Windows before. And that's really the difference that I've never seen explained well in any any of the journalism surrounding Windows 95. Hmm, That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you don't think of, you don't think of threading that much in like early Win 9 x because everybody had a uniprocessor system. So you were, you were getting benefits, but you were still, you're time slicing. So you're not getting real parallelism, but you are getting more frequent uh, sort of user interaction, uh, which makes everything seem more responsive. In, in doing more research about 95, apparently how they batched together the messages for this multi-threading was yeah. so, so bizarre that, if you like shook the mouse, things would appear to run faster. Yes, yes actually, this is this is a documented thing. So originally, it was thought to be a it was thought to be some sort of urban legend that you could make applications install faster. So installation of programs back in Windows ninety five was horrendously slow, partly because I/O speeds were slow, but also because of the way that they the way that they handled events in the OS. Things would sleep too long. And so if you took the mouse and just shook it back and forth, you could dramatically reduce the installation time of things, including, I believe, the operating system itself. Um, so, yeah, if you're impatient on Windows 95, just shake your mouse and you get what, is it like a 30% increase in I.O. performance or something. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it is a good user experience, though. It is great. Yeah, because when you're frustrated, it actually gets faster. That's cool. I wish Windows 10 had that feature. <laughs> So uh, we're going into now PC Gamer, the thing we're supposed to be covering. Um, <laughs> and you wanted to talk, well, they had some previews. You want to talk about the first preview. 
Well, so when you open up the January 1995 uh, edition of PC Gamer magazine, the first game that they talk about is this big sort of highly historically accurate hexagonal turn-based war simulation called Stalingrad. And Stalingrad, not surprisingly, is based on the famous battle of Stalingrad where German troops encountered Soviet troops. Uh, and what, what was fascinating to me about this article was that they were not at all concerned about you know, the talking about the, the quality of the graphics or the sound or the experience or the, the play mechanics. Rather, the author seemed to be really concerned about, about conveying the importance of the actual battle itself and by extension, kind of the, the importance and interest that you should have in the game. And the, the article has all these big insets with long quotes from actual like academic books about the Battle of Stalingrad. There's this huge chart that shows like the, the order of battle for like where Hitler redeployed the troops following Stalingrad that really has nothing to do with anything, but to talk about the battle itself. And, you know, the, the game says that this is something for people who like wake up late at night, wondering what would have happened. Like if the, if the Germans had gotten an early victory at Stalingrad, they would have rushed into Moscow and then would probably control all of you know, uh, Eastern Europe. And it shows you who PC gamer or at least the staff of PC Gamer, thinks their audience is. They think that their audience are the people who bought expensive PCs, the the people who bought the original IBM PC 5150. These are highly educated, um, wealthy, professional people um, who who bought PCs so that they could take work like spreadsheets and stuff home. And what what they don't realize is that while that may have been the entire PC gaming audience prior to, by this time, by 1995, there's this whole generation of the children of these, you know, wealthy, highly educated professionals who, between when they get home from school and when their parents come home from work, have just uh, complete unlimited access to their parents' PCs. And that those are the people who are now starting to become PC gamers audience because they can't afford, or at least, you know, you and I on our allowances couldn't afford, um, you know, full version games. They cost 50, $60, but we could afford to buy PC gamer off the newsstand and then play the hell out of all of its demos. Do, do you agree with what I'm saying here, Alan? Like, does that make sense? I mean, I don't know. You might be going a little bit over the top, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I agree that they didn't know exactly what audience they're shooting for, what games would be the most meaningful over time. And so... Go try to find an article about this game by Avalon Hill, Stalingrad, now. Good luck. Good luck finding any information about it at all. You know, and this was this was the lead the issue with. And they they have interviews, and it's just absolutely lavish coverage of this game that has no has no significance now really um although i don't doubt that it is an impressive simulation but yeah i mean this is i think this is the beginning of the of the of the turning point which is the it's the end of the old dos era and the beginning yeah. of the new and in, and in some ways i think it's going to be great and interesting and more accessible in other ways yeah something is definitely lost um in in this transition from from people like my dad to to people like you and I. Well, we're also transitioning from these sort of simulation games to high frame rate games, which yes, that's you know, true. That's, that's the that's what will emerge in just right. We finally have the computing power that we can, or the graphics power that we can actually drive higher frame rate games, more real time games. Yep. All right, and you wanted to talk about the rating systems at the time. <laughs> Well, talk about the talk about the setup here. Why why does there suddenly become this interest in video game rating systems? I think it was a friend of Senator Joe Lieberman tipped him off to like <laughs> Night Trap or something. Right, and it was like what tipped him, is tipped him this off game. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is a slocky FMV game that was originally produced for like it was for some interactive VHS system, I think, in the late '80s. But then they ported it over to Sega CD, and it's. It's it's more corny than it is horrifying, and then the ways that it is horrifying, I think, is more about 
positively violence toward women and things like that than about the kind of more general violence that this discussion came to be about. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, the Senator does what senators do and, and started a Senate hearing about video games and violence and nudity and those things in video games. Yeah. And Nintendo's president who uh, was Howard Lincoln, who was originally a lawyer immediately throws Sega under the bus and says, well, Nintendo does all this stuff to protect our customers from this sort of content, but Sega, they make their money off of this. And then, and the, the software publishers are just trying to find some way that they can get ahead of this and prevent, prevent the government from coming in and regulating or censoring interactive software, not just on the console side, but on the PC side. So that brings us to... And I think ultimately the outcome of the hearing was like, you guys have one year to regulate yourselves with some sort right. of rating system. but Figure it out. Yeah, but there were obviously d- different camps who had different ideas about the rating system. And in fact, I I recall that some companies sort of had their own informal rating systems, so they kind yes. of like wanted to go along with that one. So you mentioned LucasArts probably already had something going, so they're like, hey, everybody should use ours. So LucasArts comes up with the delightfully named RSAC, or Recreational Software Advisory Council. Listen, I don't make these things up. This is history. Um, and it's how it's headed up by Robert Roden, who's general counsel for LucasArts. Uh, and of course, LucasArts is the first to use RSAC ratings. And they attract a number of other PC game publishers specifically. But then in the console space... Well, in the console space, Sega, Sony, and EA formed the ESRB, which is the one that actually won out in the end. Um, yeah. But anyway, this is not very interesting about the camps. I think the opinion, the opinions of the gaming community are probably the most interesting. And in this article, PC Gamer says, like, on one hand, they're like, well, you know, these radio systems are all well-intentioned. On the other hand, they're, like, against all of them. Uh, they, they pointed <laughs> out that in film, movies want to be R-rated because the market for R-rated movies is just much bigger than than the kitty kind of stuff uh and so they're you know concerned that people will just add nudity and violence to video games to to get that higher rating and then also like some artful games will be pushed to sort of the like far extreme rating the adults only which means that you know walmart's not going to put that on the on their shelves uh which would be a problem as well they've defended you know, the creative, uh, the, you know, the creativity of, of these game producers. Yeah. But I found, I found their argument to just partly be bizarre because definitely a lot of publishers took the opposite approach where it's like, well, we're going to exclude any sort of violent content, um, because we want to address the largest possible audience. I mean, the, the thing about like R rated movies, having the, having a bigger market, is just that, well, like, because the people who pay to go see movies are adults. I think that it didn't in, in any way have the effect that PC Gamer was worried I, about. I, I disagree to some extent. I think they're both right and wrong. So I, I yeah. think that their point about the R ratings and actually like trying to get more nudity or, or violence to get that rating is yeah. totally true. Because after the ratings came out, the, the video game market kind of split into it bifurcated, two. Yeah. It bifurcated and yeah. for a lot of games they it was a badge of honor to be mature right and then the, and then the nintendos of the world would would stay on everyone and there wasn't really anything in between i think it was more yeah. like the teen rating was like if you kind of missed your mark right <laughs> then you ended up in teen yeah i feel like by the not like late night it was like by like the mid late 90s by like 97 it's like there's these two very clear camps where it's like there's like Putt-Putt joins the circus, you know, almost edutainment level, non-threatening, child-focused entertainment. And then there's like lesbians disemboweling each other. And and they'll both have advertisements in the same PC magazines. <laughs> but uh, this becomes pronounced. I, I agree. I think I think you're right. Well, I, I mean, I, I think their point is right, but the, ultimately they're they're wrong because these ratings, they're for the parents. They're not actually for the people playing the games. Yeah. And so I, I think the ratings were inevitable and, and needed to be done so that the parents were aware of what they're exposing their kids to. So yeah. I, I think their academic argument is 
it's there's some merit to it but doesn't really matter at the end yeah in the end it didn't i mean in the end what what didn't happen was censorship didn't happen and yeah and there was no there was no heavy-handed regulation and there was an article so right after that that editorial piece in pc gamer the next page is an interview with uh Jay Wilbur at id Software and asking him what he thinks about the rating systems. And he says, rating systems are great. They allow consumers to make informed decisions. We want anything but censorship or regulation. And he he added this little aside that he said that, quote, the Japanese are the masters of violent games, but their their kids don't have behavioral issues because they have strong family values and strong family structure and that he's confident that his kids will know quote right from wrong and fantasy from reality because he spends time with them and guides their uh, enjoyment of software and uh as a as a father now i'm like oh i think i think jay's had a really good point there at the the end the ratings i think just had to happen because the way games were marketed yes parents saw it so there was like an ad later in this pc gamer for blackthorn and it just says at the top violence sometimes it's the only way and so like (laughs) that's i that's i think that's that's some sort of christian value that um (laughs) interplay is trying to right so even though blizzard I don't think that video games just lead to violence on their own. Like I could see how people reading that yeah, know, cer- needed the government to step in and do something. Yeah. I mean, looking at the outrageous way that games would be and continue to be marketed. I mean, we could talk forever about the absurd, ridiculous advertisements for games that appear in PC Gamer and how even the most innocuous stuff is pitched in this sort of horrible way. Yeah, uh, which you know, we'll we'll get to talk about that a lot. We got we got years of that. So, yeah. I wanted to bring up the PC gamer. Obviously, there's they're frothing at the mouth with anticipation for the release of Dark Forces. They had had an earlier feature about it in '94, uh, and LucasArts had said that it was coming out before the end of the year, and then they said it was coming out in January of '95. Um, and that's the date that they report in this uh, in this uh, issue. But then uh, actually uh, LucasArts slips the release and it doesn't come out until February 15th. So we don't get to talk about it again uh, until our next episode. I don't believe any of the release dates I see from this era. I mean, even February 15th, like, was it right. on store shelves on February 15th? I'm doubtful. So I, I just, I take all, all release dates with a few pounds of salt yeah, it was pretty informal at this point. Yeah, there weren't people lined up. It was just like, like oh, cool, that game finally came out. Yeah, that's that's the way it is. Um, so do you want to talk about the the other thing that appears in this issue of PC Gamer is a reader's top 40. This is a response to PC Gamer's editor's top 40. And you want to just talk about a couple of the kind of surprises that showed up in this ranking? Oh, I wasn't actually surprised by anything. So you were not surprised you by any I'm of not, this? I'm not surprised, no. Okay. I mean, there were a few things that surprised me. The biggest surprise was that X-Wing, uh, you know, the the LucasArts um, Rebel Alliance Space Combat Simulator, shows up in the number two spot, but TIE Fighter is way down there at 29. Even though TIE Fighter is... Obviously, to me, the, partly because of the tech, technical improvements, but also because of the improved balance and, and the improved storyline and things like that, like TIE Fighter to me is the superior experience. And I think that time has borne this out. But at this point, everyone really likes the idea of flying, type, uh, flying an X-Wing. And so X-Wing is in the number two spot. Maybe just not enough people had played TIE Fighter at this point to realize how much better it was. <laughs> that, was uh, that was a surprise for me. And, you know, the other kind of surprise is that uh, Seventh Guest, which I consider to be some FMV garbage, uh, came in all the way at 16, beating out, you know, not just like LucasArts classics like Sam and Max and Secret of Monkey Island, but also like Railroad Tycoon and Bullfrog Syndicate and even Mist and SimCity. Um, that shows you how much interest there is in FMV games at this point, I mean, I think that um, there are a few other FMV games here that came in a little higher than I thought. And and guess what the number one spot is, Alan? 
doom, of course. But I mean, if that weren't true, I would have discredited If that wasn't true, entire... then I would call shenanigans on the whole thing. I'm happy that Star Trek 25th anniversary shows up at 33, but I'm extremely pissed off that it's behind Rebel Assault, which is absolute just... Well, that is just... Everybody loved Star Wars and they wanted to be the rebels. And so again, I'm not surprised by any of this. I mean, Star Trek 25th anniversary yes. was older and better and deeper. It, it is frustrating. The show's rebel assault, but for different reasons. I mean, rebel assault is just, it's like the, it's an example of the worst of the F and V era where it's all just full motion video in front of gameplay in front of like story in front of everything. Just make sure that it's like extremely limited interactivity motion video is is the thing that i really hate there are games that do a much better job so i i don't know just seeing just seeing rebel assault edge out star trek 25th anniversary which was one of the first games that i played on my 386 just it stabs me in the chest but i'm I'm, i'll get over it i'll get over it eventually yeah i think it's a good time capsule i mean you see in the top 10 like zork alone in the door and alone in the dork alone in the dork (laughs) (laughs) it's true if you're playing alone in the dark you're probably Right, so there's these story-driven games, RPG adventure mm-hmm. sort of games, and uh, lots yeah. of space sims. Because spoiler alert, in space you dr- you draw fewer <laughs> polygons. That's right. In in space, the the backdrop you get for free. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, by the end of the decade, you will see a lot more diversity in terms of you know first-person shooters. Because right, right now they only have id software <laughs> ones. In their defense, at this point, pretty much every first-person shooter, apart from the ones that id software has made, is just crap. So well, and then and then real-time strategy would be oh, big it's big by the now, end of the baby. Decade. So it's just nice. January ninety-five. Of... Come on. Okay, it's maybe not refined, but I don't even know if it's big. Anyway, it's hopeful. It's all hopeful. Yeah. So we'll you know revisit at the end of the decade. All right. Um, so there was a horrifying <laughs> article later on in this PC gamer. No, this uh, is all you. Like to Listen, I I read all five pages of this, and i I don't have a I don't have a like formal computer science credential, but I did work in the industry in in a number of technically demanding positions for more than a decade, and I was confused. <laughs> so why don't you talk about? It? Okay, so it's called DOS for Gamers, colon, Memory Management Made Easy. And it's not easy. And Ain't nothing easy in this article. It's So the problem with this article, and if I was an editor, I would have definitely pulled it. But the problem with this article is they, they give people these <laughs> example auto-execs. That are specific to a single editor's sis. particular setup. Moreover, though, they don't actually, I mean, there's a lot of very complex arguments to oh, all yeah. those functions and yeah. lines and that they use but they don't explain it so it's such like this is such a hazardous article where i could see a kid right. like copying one of these lines and they either make a typo they or they don't have anymore. the file in that file name and yeah, yeah. then dos won't boost so, just, so, just so everyone knows from a high level PC Gamer published an article basically about how to free up more conventional memory, that is the base 640 kilobytes of memory on your IBM compatible PC in order to run software that has high conventional memory requirements. Like basically everything at this point wants 600K of conventional because because it does, because things are getting more sophisticated now. And the the, the basic idea is that you want to try to load your drivers, the drivers, whatever drivers you need. If it's your, if it's your hard disk compression space doubler, if it's your PS2 port mouse driver, if it's your CD-ROM driver, you just want to load that in high memory outside of the base 640K. But the problem with this is everything. Outside of 640K, memory is not heterogeneous. It's like split up into all of these completely nonsensical zones of different sizes. And so it's basically this horrible integer knapsack problem where you're trying to jam different sized drivers into different size memory spaces and seeing if you can optimize the use of the storage. And there are all these factors that contribute to why this is absolutely impossible to do and horribly frustrating. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> Windows 95 can't come soon enough. That is the other problem with the article, which is just like the first part sort of made sense. It's like the Michelle Obama yeah. rule of, of DOS of 
when they go low, <laughs> we go high. <laughs> Meaning, put 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 all your if memory only, into upper if only memory. Only Michelle Obama had written this article. I, and after that, it just got more bizarre. In fact, at the end, they even said like, "Oh, I don't use DOS's <laughs> memory manager anymore. I use QMU." I don't. It was it was absurd. I actually uploaded my consciousness into my computer in order to dynamically allocate my memory using wetware. Um, if you were having trouble getting any particular game to work, this probably wasn't going to help you. It was probably just going to make you more sad. Okay, so your Pinion 100 is now That's right. operational. Just much like the Death Star or um, or Data's genitalia in Star Trek The Next Generation, it is fully functional. So I went to the, the recyclers and I was looking for a machine that I could use that would be period correct for 1995 that I could use probably until 97 or so. I didn't want to have to upgrade everything um, too many times. And so I was looking for a Socket 7 motherboard, and I just, out of pure luck, I happened across this beige uh, AT desktop case with this unfamiliar VICTS, V-I-C-T-S logo. I later found out this was a small, like, boutique computer maker in Sunnyvale that later, I think, got picked up by Raytheon or something, at least bought the rights to some of their stuff. And... There's a very yellowed sticker on the front that I couldn't really read, but I actually realized that it is an Intel inside <laughs> sticker that's been so sun-bleached that it's now completely illegible. The whole thing is horribly yellowed, but I open it up and look inside, and there is an Asus Socket 7 430V VX chipset board. There was a, a Diamond Stealth 64T DRAM which is a Trio 64 card. There was no sound card. There was no optical drive, but there was a Pentium 100 in that Socket 7. And the, the 430VX chipset, the Pentium 100, this was perfect 1995 material. The only problem was that it didn't work. Um, and I have started a series of blog articles on uh, on our blog at smugandplay.com, or you can go to smugandplay.com or smuginplay.com either. I'm doing a series of articles there about the process of restoring this computer, but I'm happy to say that I now have a working Pentium 100 megahertz system with 16 megabytes of EDO memory, a S3 Trio 64 one megabyte FPM graphics card, and and an ESS 1868F plug-and-play ISA Sound Blaster Pro clone card pulled out of a compact presario some vintage that i think sounds great and a whole bunch of other random components that i found in dumpsters over the years that has added up to a beautiful functional pinium 100 that i've been playing all of these things on so i can give impressions on real hardware because man it's different than dosbox so let's talk about disc two. Oh yeah january 1995 the uh, headliners were Transport Tycoon and Warcraft. Yeah. So I'd like to just go into Transport Tycoon. In fact, we should call it by its full name, Chris Sawyer's Transport Tycoon. <laughs> right. This is an auteur business simulation game. Well, it's important that they say Chris Sawyer's because it's basically a, a sequel to Railroad Tycoon, which was a Sid Meier game. So this is a new de designer. This is his debut game as well, if I'm correct. The graphics were incredible. Yeah, they actually... Much better than SimCity 2000, which was already yeah. the pinnacle of this genre. Mm -hmm. I mean, Railroad Tycoon only had railroads. This yes. had everything. This has planes, trains, and automobiles. Hyperloops, probably. <laughs> no, there's no Hyperloop. Although there should be, because it spans... It goes from 1930 to 2030, right? That's the time frame of the game. I didn't get that. I didn't get into 2030 um, in the demo. I actually... 
I actually discovered that if I played it for more than about 30 minutes, that it, that the game would blow its stack. And that's not a locomotive reference. That's a computer science reference. <laughs> I would get a stack overflow. I think there might have been some bugs. They hadn't quite worked out at this point. Uh, there's also no sound in the demo, which was a little bit disappointing, but not really a problem because everything else is there and everything else is, is pretty amazing. What were your impressions, Alan? It's an incredibly immersive game but where i like SimCity and SimCity 2000 i actually just hate this game because <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of like sim city for sociopaths mm. in my view like in sim city you're doing a you know it's a public good that yeah, you're it's your, like, your providing. yeah it's your civic duty your civic duty and you can kind of in both games, pick your own objective. But in SimCity, you know, there's like happiness of your people right. that you want to improve. And there's also like disasters happen and you want to protect them mm-hmm. from right. aliens invading yeah. and that kind of stuff. Whereas this game, you're just like making train lines and, and flight plans. And yeah, you can kind of define, I mean, whatever selfish goal you want, is it profits is it like to make the most inconvenient train routes? Like what? <laughs> like it's a certain, it feels yeah. so much more antisocial to me than SimCity. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's an optimization problem paired with sort of a train set building simulation that's been greatly expanded to cover all these other kinds of transport. And so it's it's deep and elaborate and and fulfilling on certain levels. But yeah, I totally agree. It lacks the it lacks the charm and the warmth of of SimCity. And that's kind of the magic of SimCity. But I think a lot of people just loved what was there because this thing goes on to be like a lifelong obsession for a lot of people. This is the basis of um, the open source uh, recreation, OpenTTD. So this lives on in, in various forms and tribute games and things, as well as in this open source version forever. You know, it's if people are still actively playing this game and I can see why just because the depth of the simulation is that great. I, I agree the graphics are are phenomenal. Popped right into SVGA on my S3 Trio 64. And I was like, okay, wow, um, this looks good. But then even though I was in SVGA mode, I was still running out of screen real estate like immediately. Because this is the first simulation game where I really wanted a pop-up blocker. Every time anything happens, there's immediately a pop-up takes up like a good third of the screen. And then I got my trains going. And then I have whatever I'm working on is up in another window. And I'm like, it's basically like Windows 3.1, the game, plus... <laughs> that's a it's plus a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on. It's an important game, I think, to the simulation genre, but I agree with everything you say with it regarding like with in comparison to SimCity. Another big title on the disc, Lord of the Rings. No, I mean, no, uh, no, no, that's a different license for it. This is Lords of the Realm. It actually doesn't have anything to do with Tolkien fantasy. It has nothing to do with it. This is all about ye oldie grady Brittany. Yes, yeah, so you and five other lords pick counties in england that you're gonna be a feudal lord over this is the middle ages Mm -hmm. and you kind of just uh micromanage everything (laughs) in your county including you know what you're gonna grow what you know animals you're gonna raise and eventually it goes to more iron age kind of stuff but in the beginning it's it's cows and sheep and right uh, cheese Mm, cheese Cheese, cheese is good delicious cheeses uh, other agricultural products, some mining, some light mining and, and quarrying on the side. It's it's a turn based game. It plays a lot like a like a tabletop game where each one is it plays a different character, the countess, the this, the that, and and takes and takes turns sort of setting up for the next season, uh, reallocating peasants, building things, raising armies, and then eventually marching on each other in order to sort of I guess unite the Britons. I mean, is that what you're trying to do? I would guess so. I didn't really know exactly how the how the allocation system worked. And so I made my peasants both very healthy and very happy. But then I accidentally also made them vegan um, because I forgot to put people on the uh, on the shepherding and such. And so all of my cows and sheep died. And so I mean, people were healthy for up to a point and then their health started to sort of decay. Also, I don't know about you, but pretty much every season I had torrential rains that destroyed crops. Did that happen to you? Yeah. But my note was famine simulation <laughs> for because I guess, you know, we, we uh, come from a middle class American background, but agriculture is really hard. 
especially if you're in some sort of agriculturally marginal space. I was in Yorkshire. Where did you start out? Suffolk. Suffolk. Oh, gosh. There are a lot of sheep in Suffolk, aren't there? Love the sheep. Love them. Love the sheep. Literally, sheep lovers. Now, probably most of our listeners are in Suffolk. Yeah. I, did Did you get any interaction with the other, the simulated opponents? Like the Countess kept on making threats. She never acted on them, but she was like, hey, just FYI, I'm going to wreck your shit in like 10 turns. Yeah, they, they do that. And I watched a Let's Play because I also had a little trouble. But they said like each of them has kind of like a certain mentality. And like, I think the Baron, they said like, he's cool with you until you piss him mm-hmm. off and then he destroys you. So <laughs> I I did think it, it was for this era of game, they did a good job of yeah. sort of personalizing the characters. And they even did a good job with economics. Like yeah. They figured out Actually, how to make a market for all the different things. Right. Determine the spread between bid and ask. Yeah. I, when I actually read the readme and then went back and played it, I realized that it, it's a really well-crafted simulation, but it's, it has a friendly exterior. I thought the graphics... The graphics are not high mm-hmm. resolution, but they're very appealing. I think as a as a land game, you know, you and a friend versus the computer opponents, this would be a lot of fun. Next, a Sierra title Battle Bugs. Battle Bugs. This was a surprise for me. This was a surprise standout. What what did you think of Battle Bugs, Alan? I wanted to have bombs, but I didn't. Ah, yes, so there's a whole upset. thing about ordinance, and yet no ordinance was given in the in the demo missions. So I don't know what you're supposed to do. Everybody I watched was like bomb people. <laughs> well, so so this is a, everyone should know, this is a 1994 game developed by Epix, published by Sierra. And it's basically an, a real-time strategy game that has absolutely adorable SVGA graphics in 640 by 480 or 800 by 600 if your graphics card supports it. And they're basically two different kinds of missions. They're missions where you're just trying to get your bugs to capture certain um, food items that are on the map. So you land a bug on the food item, it starts to raise a little flag. And when the flag gets to the top, then you've claimed that and it unclaims a a previously, the food had been previously claimed by another team, it'll unclaim it. And so sometimes you're just trying to get to a certain number of food capture points. Other times you're trying to actually eliminate the opposing forces. But for an RTS game from 1994, it's actually pretty fully featured. You can you can use mouse mouse dragging to select multiple units. You can issue units orders concurrently. You can use its built-in pathfinding, or you can specify the path you want it to follow. The units have a lot of depth to them. There's flying, there's flying ground and mixed types. There's the whole ordnance system, which again the demo didn't really get into. So it's uh, I was actually pretty impressed, and and the game is just cute AF. I mean, I I was screaming at it. It is it is, it is quite cute and and appropriate. All the yeah pizza and you know ketchup and you know what wh- where you expect bugs to to be. Yeah, it's what you would expect uh, a bug based RTS to be. The menus are super cute. The music I thought was pretty good. I actually had a lot of fun with it. I was. I my my son and I were playing it together, and he would get really upset when that uh, praying mantis on the opposing team would like start just wrecking my lightning bugs. Lightning bugs don't have a lot of offensive capability, and the mm-hmm. the praying mantis is basically like the OP fully upgraded hydralisk of this game, and so he just comes and wrecks you. But he's not that fast, and so I was just flying my bugs everywhere, trying to like distract him, waylay him, so I could capture my half of a pop tart and a slice of pizza and i was screaming things at the screen like get the fuck off my pop tart um which is something i haven't had an opportunity to do in other games so i actually really enjoyed it i mean given the name battle bugs it's kind of everything you wanted prom well, you know, everything was promised and more yeah so it's it's everything you could want from from that yeah Okay, next, the fortress of Doctor Radiarchy. Uh, yes, and that is the it has the old timey newsreel voice in the beginning of the game because that's a great thing to do. The first person shooter game, yep. and it's a piece of shit. <laughs> it's terrible. I mean, it starts. It has an intro which mocks itself entirely. They have. A, <laughs> I have a quote here. Yeah. Radiarchy and radiation start with the same letters, so naturally the UN is suspicious. Oh. Do you notice that the that the premise is essentially the same as Austin Powers? That basically, Dr. yeah, Doctor Radiaki holds the world hostage for a million dollars. 
Yeah. So anyway, uh, you start out with a bat and you hit ninjas yeah. and you utter words when you kill somebody like, and they also utter words yes. like Rosebud. Yeah. And it's not just ninjas. There's also Rosie from the Jetsons with a shotgun. And there's also Fidel Castro <laughs> later on. So it's an equal opportunity offender to Asian and Latinx people. And robots. In concept, it's sort of similar to Duke, Duke Nukem, Duke Nukem 3D, I would say. But the, the whoever the protagonist is, is completely unlovable. Whereas like Duke Nukem, despite his faults. Yeah, there's some sort of charm. And I, I could forgive a lot mechanically in this game, except for the fact that the fucking ninjas can throw shurikens through a corner. And your first hint that some that there's a ninja is when the shurikens go, you can't see the ninja yet, but the shurikens are going directly through the corner of the corridor that you're walking down and killing you. And that's just a, that's just a rage quit for me. I mean, yet another horrible doom clone. Um, yeah. Less, less said, the better. Did you play Wacky Wheels? I played Wacky Wheels and Scunny and Cart. Scunny Cart. Gee, did you notice the two of those games were kind of similar? I mean, I noticed both of them were similar to another <laughs> game. <laughs> Let me give you a little backstory. So way back in 1993 uh, and going into 94, a guy named Andy Edwardson was working in the UK as a contract uh, programmer for this Belgian software publisher with the uh, wonderful name Coffee Soft. He got kind of fed up with with them and the the meager work that they were sending his way. So he decided he would build something in his spare time that might be fun. And so he was looking at what's happening on consoles, saw Super Mario Kart and went, oh, that's cool. Well, PCs are pretty powerful now. I should be able to do something like that. So he created this game demo called Wacky Kart. And then he he put the game demo and the source code for the demo on a floppy disk and he gave it to David Snell at CopySoft and said, hey, is this something you guys might be interested in publishing? Well, the people at CopySoft saw this and thought it was fucking amazing. And so they put this, they put screenshots of it up on CompuServe saying that it was coming soon without having actually negotiated with uh, Andy Edwardson the rights to publish the game. And and so then uh, guys from Apogee, Scott Miller at Apogee, sees the screenshots from CopySoft on CompuServe, reaches out to CopySoft saying that they want to publish this in the US. Concurrently with that, Andy Edwardson says, I want to just go and work for Apogee. And so he pays back the $25,000 that uh, CopySoft had given him for like equipment, buys himself out of his CopySoft contract, and then just goes over to work for Apogee, takes Wacky Cart with him, works with Apogee in order to create Wacky Wheels. But then CopySoft releases a game called Scunny Cart. Now Scunny is CopySoft's obligatory 90s animal mascot. Basically, he's Belgian Bubsy. And Scunny Cart looks just like Wacky Wheels, or more specifically, it looks just like the original Wacky Cart because they have used, with, without permission, basically, or without license, the source code that Andy had left on the demo disc that he left with them. This results in a huge legal feud, which is covered in an editorial in the back of this episode of, of this issue of PC Gamer, where they try to like give equal weight to arguments from Apogee's Scott Miller and from uh, CopySoft's David Snell. David Snell says that they were that they were under contract and that everything that Andy wrote while he was under contract for anything for any project from CopySoft reverts to them that they have ownership of. Obviously, Scott Miller from Apogee doesn't agree with that. There's some basic disagreement on the facts. And so what we have here are two games that are the same game, one with a considerably more polish. I'm surprised that one would show up in court if, if the company's name was CopySoft. Yes. You're <laughs> to begin with. Yeah. Don't go suing people who are stealing their source code if the name of your company is CopySoft. <laughs> Obviously, both games are a huge ripoff of Super Mario Kart, yes, but entirely. I enjoyed them greatly, and I played Wacky Wheels a lot. Yeah. At some point, we got a laptop, and I played uh, Wacky Wheels on it yep. a lot, and uh, so it brought back good memories for me. The thing that I don't understand is like the the business model. I mean, I know it's shareware, right? But like, who actually like wrote into Apogee and was like, "I need this level uh, for Wacky Wheels"? <laughs> I didn't ever have that thought yeah. as a child. Yeah, we should. I know. My thought as a child was, oh, great. I beat the demo. Let me launch it again. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why there was this huge transition from the shareware model to shareware model plus big box and stores or just like straight to big box and stores after a demo, because I, I'm sure it didn't convert well, uh, especially when you consider that the, the audience for this is basically kids whose parents have banned them from playing any more Super Nintendo, <laughs> but who can access a PC surreptitiously and basically play the same thing. The demo got a lot of play. I don't know what the sales figures were for this. It'll be a cool thing to look up. If anybody knows. All right. So next game, Battle Isle 2200. Right. It's a, uh, this is a turn-based strategy game with tanks. And mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. Uh, you get to move your tanks and then attack. And then it cuts to this 3D animation. Yeah. No texture mapping. Yeah, flat-shaded just, polys. Just flat-shaded polygons. And then they fire like flack at each other and then some of them blow up which doesn't make much sense for like i don't know like for some reason i have a lot of infantry versus tank battles well you see the infantry are all understood they're all battle robots is the thing to remember there are no people shooting at each other these are all battle robots on battle island sorry i couldn't tell from the the four polygons that each person is made out of four polygons of the same color yeah um so this is like a turn-based hexagonal war game tons and tons of units tons of depth there's a resource collection system to it there's like there's rails you there's some units that only can travel on rails and so there's like creation of roads and rails as part of this it's it's slow paced i mean first of all each of the battle sequences you can you can skip out of the 3d animated battle sequences but they are pretty you can yeah you just like hit escape but it's pretty impressive for for 95 and I thought the interface was pretty efficient. I was overall pretty pleased by this. The only problem with it is that when you finish... Oh my God, I was about to say, yeah. When you finish your turn, you can go make a sandwich. You can go take a bike ride. You can go do your tax returns. I I just left for like an hour for all of the computer turns to resolve. It takes forever. Yeah, I would not be playing this game. Yeah. I'm happy real-time strategy happened. Shortly. Yeah, I was about to say this is this game is basically an argument for real time strategy. But if you like this kind of turn based strategy, um, it's actually it's pretty cool. It's it's pretty cool. All right, next one. One must fall twenty ninety seven. Yes, or or as the instructions call it, OMF, as it's frequently OMF. It's a two D fighting game, um, and despite being made by Epic, it it, it well, it's styles not, itself as a Japanese fighting. It's not game. made by Epic. It's published by Epic. But it was made by Diversions Entertainment, actually by a brother team, Ryan and Rob Elam, who made this when they were like basically kids. And I actually I actually enjoyed it. I was expecting to hate play this because I was like, oh, God, it's a Rise of the Robots clone. Please, God, not not again. Did you like it? I, I liked everything. I liked the kind of mecha. I think the one problem I had, it was uh, they didn't control the frame rate and it was just ridiculously <laughs> fast. fast. Yeah, you can. If you go into settings, you can actually turn the speed down, which I had to do. It was it was absurdly fast on my Pentium 100 until I set it at basically 50. I mean, the match was four seconds for me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you gotta you gotta set the speed down. Once I set the speed down, actually, it was pretty good. It wasn't hard at all, though. Basically, the computer opponents were not prepared for me to mm-hmm. unleash an endless string of roundhouse kicks, uh, which basically is a is an instant win. You, you talked about the art style. Talk about that a little bit more. Mecha. It's mecha, but like, the cutscenes. Yeah, I mean, there's taunting before the match, and then there's like a little recap well, a, by like an announcer afterwards. So that's yeah. why it felt like a Japanese fighting yeah, game to me. Yeah, it's like a news program where they kind of yeah. have some funny commentary on the bout afterwards and it's all done in a sort of kind of quasi manga style it's very it's very much gundam macross inspired and you should read read the electronic manual for this because it is fucking hilarious obviously written by some immature people there's a sarcastic donald trump quote in there it's just it's just loaded with dripping with sarcasm and then when it's not dripping with sarcasm there's actually a pretty interesting sci-fi backstory because every game from here on out from 1995 until we get to about 2001 every single game we're going to play has some sort of deep neuromancer-esque human consciousness uploading deep sci-fi backstory it's obligatory 
by law, all games made in this period have to have it. And this game has one as well about this company that was mutually making robots for space exploration, but then they end up using them in some sort of dystopian future as a combat thing. And yeah, and the music was very good. Oh too, my god, so it's kind of a so package. much EDM. Yeah. It is some good yeah. mid '90s EDM in this one. Yeah, if you have to play a fighting game uh, on your PC, I would say. One Must Fall 2097 is my pick. I would I find it a lot more fun and, and interesting uh, than Rise of the Robots, which is um, more technically accomplished, I guess, but less charming, less stylish, less referential of mecha anime. All right, next game, Hammer of the Gods, which is kind of like Civilization, but with like RPG-style yeah. fighting once you try to invade somebody. Right. Well, and it has, of course, this big Norse god yeah. theme. I was confused because they have some cool F and V at the beginning, right? Yeah, the cinematic intro, the the voiceover, it all seems very, very serious. And then very some very odd things happen here. I invaded a city, realized I have one person fighting against like twelve opponents, <laughs> and so I just ran. Yeah, and then once I ran, it cut out of that to a thing that said like quest completed your daughter has accepted the marriage proposal <laughs> that's exactly what happened to me except i didn't even attack anyone i i moved my boat two spaces and then it said quest complete your daughter has accepted a marriage like what and it also explains itself too much yeah even at the beginning they're like this game's not really ready guys but just so you know right it's like oh yeah i know well it has all these like it has all these qualifiers right in the beginning like it's making excuses for itself like as soon as you launch it, it's like hey just so you know like we weren't even planning to make a demo but like we thought we thought you might want to try it so here here it is but if any crashes we're really sorry but like it's not ready yet so like just be bear with us like just see what you can do which is a huge contrast to our next game yes thank Warcraft jesus by Blizzard Entertainment. oh god thank you <laughs> Thank you, Blizzard. <laughs> Thank you for saving us. This was such a bad idea, Blizzard. Chrono Gaming, every single demo on every single PC gamer disc. Thank you, Blizzard, for just giving us a little ray of sunshine. A game that not only worked, but I would actually like to play. So Warcraft, I mean, we talked in the last podcast about Dune 2 mm-hmm. and it being sort of the inspiration for modern RTS. Mm-hmm. But Warcraft, probably the first thing we might call a modern rts and uh yeah you could make armies you build things with your peasants you have to get resources by cutting down trees and mining for gold mm-hmm. everything that you you expect from a real-time strategy game yeah and and most important thing even the demo you know had multiplayer as a, as a selectable mm-hmm. option yeah Null modem. Which obviously would become a huge thing and why people would play these games. Yeah, yeah. And it has a great single player campaign as well. You could play in this demo, you can play both the, uh, the human side or the orcs. Yeah. Um, I mean, the humans and the orcs are pretty much identical in this game. Yeah, in terms of the capabilities, they say different funny things when you click on them and the campaigns are different. But yeah, so mechanically, let's talk about how this was an evolution from Dune 2. So obviously Westwood Studios and Blizzard are kind of going back and forth here. We're sort of looking at each other's work, refining ideas, they're kind of co-developing the modern RTS. What, what did you notice was a big improvement from Dune 2? Uh, you, you go. Okay. Um, multiple unit selection. So Dune 2 actually didn't allow you to select multiple units at the same time. This does... The way that you do it is not exactly the way that I like. It's not intuitive. It's not even what Battle Bugs did. But so you can't just like drag and you know, click and, and select a region and get all the units in that region and then issue commands to them. Instead, you have to hold the shift key uh, when you click on multiple units. And that kind of adds them into a temporary group. And you can only have up to four units in each group, which you know is a huge limitation. But still, I was able to having at one point tried to be a more accomplished StarCraft player and, and having really high APM and like doing a lot of macro and micro at the same time and kiting things. Like I got into it very quickly and you can see the through line from this to Warcraft 2 to StarCraft because the StarCraft, I think you're, you can do 16 units per group or something like that, but they're just iterations upon this. And, and at the lower resolution, at the lower scale, and this being sort of in the Warcraft line of things, this really does feel like a 
a more modern RTS. And I, I immediately was having fun going back and forth, doing RTS things, going back and forth between the economy and, and war and ex- exploration. And I, I was really grooving on it. I, it's funny because you, you see it from like Dune 2 forward and I, I see it more as StarCraft going back. Yeah. And I had a kind of completely different revelation because in StarCraft, they teach you like the mouse stuff right. first. Yeah. And you have left click and select, you have right click to do actions. And then as you continue to lose, you learn how to use the keyboard shortcuts. Right, yeah. Whereas in this game, you know, you select units and then when you want to do something with them, you really have to use the keyboard. I mean, you could theoretically move over yeah. and click on attack, right. but you're not going to do that. Yeah. So <laughs> it was funny because I kind of learned through this game that like, oh, you are always supposed to use the keyboard shortcuts. And StarCraft was like putting you up on some handicap. Mm-hmm. So I actually found it kind of refreshing to see like, oh, this is like, how you're actually supposed to play these games. Yes, especially on my Pentium 100, you know, the spear throwers, uh, they have pretty rapid fire. You really want to be using the keyboard shortcuts and responding and trying to like kite kite the different uh, enemies as as effectively as you can. What did you think of the, what do you think of the art style? Oh, I wrote down the high, the sprites are really high resolution Mm -hmm. for this time. Yeah. I mean, I, I like this art style. It's, it's kind of, it's cute slightly bulbous yeah a little i don't know how to describe it but it's, it's sort of like that kind of more cutesy fantasy art where things are a little distended and and awkward but it also makes it a little bit less serious or it's like not taking itself very seriously so i when i was playing the human campaign when you start a, a level in the human campaign you have this little this little kind of cinematic scene there's text sort of scrolling over this this uh, animated backdrop of looks like Merlin and Aragorn having a romantic dinner with each other. And, you know, they, they have these kind of looks on their faces, like they're kind of looking at you sideways and being like, hey, you're intruding on our romantic tete-a-tete. Can you just like go and like, repel some orcs or something? You know, like we're getting blitzed on butterbeer over here. Can you guys leave us alone? So sometimes the art style kind of <laughs> when it comes to facial expressions and things kind of i thought was a little awkward but overall i thought it was it was pretty charming the one thing that's sort of missing for me i liked the midi but somehow like i associate rts with cd audio mm. for some reason which made me un- unable to feel the same way that i did playing command and conquer and those sorts of things later on yeah i mean when we talk about command and conquer i think it's coming out in august uh, of 95 they just absolutely knocked it out of the fucking park with the sound. And there's a great story behind how that happened. And then after that, that high watermark, everybody just had to up their game. And and Starcraft has a phenomenal soundtrack. But yeah, it, it became the de facto. The music is a it's a little bit repetitive. And it's also like a dirge. It's like wah, 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 wah. It gets to be a little annoying, but still it's still not bad you know it was well it's all well executed the game just freaking runs and uh, this is an important advance in the rts genre which you and i both love so i think that we should give give blizzard some props um, for another great polished game and are you gonna give them the pick of the disc uh, yeah you know i think i have to i mean I think we both have to give it to Warcraft. I don't know. I thought maybe you would pick Battlebugs because you're I mean, weird. But... Battlebugs is sort of my surprise. Battlebugs and and One Must Fall 2097 are my surprise enjoyed these games picks. But in terms of my pick of the disc, it's going to have to go to Warcraft. If I if I played this and was like, okay, I've got 50 or 60 bucks, I can buy one game off the shelf. I think Warcraft makes the best sort of uh, argument for itself. Sure as fuck, not going to be Doctor Radiaki's fortress. Um, God, but yeah, War- Warcraft for me. Same for you. <laughs> Definitely. Good. We can continue this podcast. I wanted to just make a few announcements here before we sign off. Number one. Thanks to Alan's hard work for the most part here. The podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, as well as directly on our website, smuginplay.com. If you have friends who you think would be interested in this show, please encourage them to subscribe and And review. Oh, that's right. Subscribe and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to have used. Um, 
we want to also encourage our listeners to play along. So obviously we're going month by month. Next month is going to be February 95. Uh, if you go to archive.org, pretty much every PC Gamer disc is available there. So if you search for PC Gamer to February 1995, you can find an ISO image. You can load that up in DOSBox or you can put it on a period correct machine and you can play along and you can compare your reactions to our reactions. And I think that would be a great thing for you to talk with us about on our social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter. We are on Instagram as at Smug and Play and it is the same on Twitter at Smug in Play. You can go there for updates on the podcast as well as behind the scenes images and stories. If you go to our blog at smuginplay.com, you can read a series of articles that I'm posting detailing the restoration of my Pentium 100 and giving you some tips if you would like to play through these games on period correct hardware, how you can do that without going completely broke and insane like I have personally. Next month, really looking forward to Dark Forces. Dark Forces next one, everybody. It's coming out on the 15th. We might have another guest on to help us. Admiral talk Akbar. About Admiral Akbar. Uh, yes, he will be taking a break, a leave of absence from the Mon Calamari in order to come and talk about how it's a trap. <laughs> See you, folks. <laughs> See ya.